Now, we're covering hot topics. Today, what we're going to cover is something called the exclusivity of Christ. You probably already believe that, I would guess. If you don't, I hope to convince you of that today. I also hope to equip you and empower you to make that argument to those that are around you because our world is telling us otherwise. So if I say to you, Burger King, what comes to your mind? Perhaps it's the Whopper. Perhaps it's that weird king with the plastic head that used to be a thing, but somehow they've done away with. Maybe it's because it's British appropriation. Uh, Maybe it's just simply fast food. Maybe it's their fries. Maybe it's some other thing about Burger King. Well, Burger King came out with a slogan. Do you know the slogan? Have it your way. It came out in 1974. The slogan sums up the difference with its rival McDonald's, or at least it was supposed to then. I don't know if it still does. The slogan fits well with the emphasis in pop culture on individuality. And so today, have it your way, is not just Burger King's slogan. It's a slogan of a lot of the people of the world. Now, you may not be able to read all this. I'm going to read it for you. I have it quoted here. Uh, But this is, I I believe, probably on the back of one of their French fry things. I don't have the whole picture, so I can't tell you that. This was on their box. It says this, you have the right to have what you want Exactly when you want it. No amens there? Okay. Uh, Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's, and the day after that, and, well, uh, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. And with all one, the church says, blasphemy, right? And so Burger King is wrong. But another fairly well-known slogan or bumper sticker, if you will, is this. Perhaps you've seen this, right? I know that I have. And they've even added to this. They've added all kinds of things to it. And and it it kind of, for lack of better terminology, it evolves over time. There's been other ones, and then there's there's ones that they put up. And so this is, I think, I I hope, I've I've tried to be the most up-to-date that I can with this. And so I, I would say in coexisting, peace with all religions, peace with all people, absolutely right. And that would be a good time, church, for you to say amen. Peace with all, absolutely correct, so far as we are able, right? That's what scripture tells us. But all is right. Have whatever you want, whatever you want to. You are the ruler and almighty of everything. That is dead, dead wrong. Which brings me, again, to this Burger King phrase, have it your way. That's what the world tells us. The world tries to tell us, hey, there's so many different ways. How can we know anything about it? Uh, Well, today what we're going to talk about is the exclusivity of Christ, and if that 50 cents word threw you off, all that means is Jesus is the only way. And we as a church, we as a people, you as individuals, should stand on that truth unashamedly. You should be able to articulate that truth. You should be able to defend that truth, because that is the truth. So, how can Christianity claim that there is only one way to God? Well, God has opened the door to fellowship with him, and we happen to know what that is. Uh, Jesus is the door. He is the only way. This is the exclusivity of Christ. Let's pray. And then what I'm going to cover with you is the clarity of this claim, the counters to this claim, um, the condition of this claim, and then our congruence with this claim. Okay? You guys ready? Uh, Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we praise you for today. You are worthy of our praise, and we gladly bring it to you. You are so far above anything that we can even imagine that we are humbled by the idea of you. Yet, we confess 
but this is not always the way we think. There are times that we minimize your glory. There are times that we compromise your word. We do not always think of you as we ought to. We do not serve you as we ought to. We do not speak of you as we ought to. So forgive us our transgressions against your glory, God. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son, that we might have this fellowship with you. That you are so far beyond us, that it is only by your coming to us that we have any hope of being with you. So as we look to this topic today of the exclusivity of salvation through your Son, Christ, help us not only mentally assent to this truth, but also proclaim it, worship you for it, but also let us not go proud in it, but rather rejoice in the wonder as we proclaim it. We thank you for this truth. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to start with giving you some rapid-fire scriptures, so you can write them down if you would like to, um, or I can print this for you later, but what we're going to talk about is the clarity of this claim, and we're going to talk about the clarity of the claim based on God's word, which is where we get the claim from, okay? So here are my rapid-fire scriptures for you as we look at the clarity of this. You will see the theme of this very clearly, I hope. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Seems pretty clear. Next verse, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seems pretty clear. John 3, 17 through 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, 7 through 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go, out, go in and out and find pasture. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lastly, 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Seems pretty clear. Uh, this is the claim and understanding of all of the Old and all of the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God continues to remind Israel he will save his people by his mighty hand. He continues to remind them through the Levitical sacrifices that the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse them completely. And that is obviously so clearly a foreshadow of the spotless lamb who is then referred to, if, if you were curious, in Revelation, who is the Christ. And so throughout all of Scripture, and Jesus, after his resurrection, came to those disciples, showed them how all scripture points to them, and we see in some of the famous passages, all scripture finds its yes in Christ. So the Bible is clear. You either believe the Bible or you don't. You either believe the gospel of Christ or you don't. 
We cannot save people. Only God does that. What we can do is make the message of the gospel clear. Which brings me to the first homework assignment of this entire message, which is this. Can you, individually, not corporately, because I'm talking to you individually. I'm talking to y'all corporately, but you individually. Can you articulate the gospel? Could you do it in three minutes or less? Maybe that sounds stupid, but here's the thing. If you ever saw a car accident and you went over to them and somebody's dying and you're, you're watching them die and they say something to you like, I'm scared to die, could you in that moment articulate the gospel to them? I hope so. So what is the gospel? How do we know? If you need help with that, please call me and set up a time. But can we articulate it? Because how can we give that which we do not know? So that's your homework. Can you articulate the gospel? Can you give a clear presentation in three minutes or less? Next, what are some counters to this claim? Because uh, let's just be honest, right? Uh, people have uh, issues with this. They take issues with this. So I'm going I'm to show you four. There's probably others. I've tried to kind of uh, put some together so as to save time with today's message. But I'm going I'm to present to you uh, four counters to the claim of Christ's exclusivity, and I'm also going to show you the, the counter to that counter. Does that make sense? And then I'm going to show you the counter to that counter, and then I'm going to no, I'm just, so we're going to show you the counter, and then the counter to that counter. So we're going to show you the counter, and then the truth. How's that? That probably makes it clear, okay? So the first counter to this claim of Christ's exclusivity is what I'm going to refer to as the fairness objection. You probably intrinsically have heard it, or you know it. I guess you intrinsically know it, and then you've, you've heard it, probably, um, this is the way I'm going to articulate this, okay? So this is the fairness objection. It is not fair that those who have never heard of Jesus Christ will not be saved. It is not their fault that they will never have the opportunity to hear about Jesus because of where or when they were born. So it's not fair. Even as a child, we understand this argument, right? That's not fair. Well, let me ask you this. Fair according to whose standard? Fair according to your finite, minuscule, warped by sin, understanding of fair, or fair according to the sovereign God of the universe who designed reality this way. You see, we have placed ourselves on a pedestal of judgment and in fact judging God's grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness when we claim this counter to this argument. It is told to us in Scripture that this might appear unfair, but Romans, as the proof text for this, tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So it's not fair that we can be saved. The fair thing would have been for God to see the sin of humanity, for him to simply blot us out as a blight and start over or move on. 
What would have been fair is for every single one of us, because of our destitution before the Lord, because of our warped sense of self, because of sin that we have not only inherited, but sin that we have perpetrated, what is fair is for us to be condemned for all of eternity to a place of separation from God, which is a real place called hell, that by the way, wasn't even originally made for us. That's what is fair. And so the counter to the exclusivity of Christ is, that's not fair. These people haven't heard about that. Well, let me tell you what a seminary professor told me. If the fairness of people not hearing the gospel, like if, if that causes you to lose sleep at night, and in a room this big, I, I pray, I pray that there's at least one who that does cause you to lose sleep at night. Because we need to understand what hell is, what the wrath and judgment of God is. We need to understand the, the depth of deception out there in the world. And if that does cause you issues, then congratulations, my brother or sister, for God is calling you to missions. And you ought to embrace the heartache and pray for him to give wisdom to you, to the people group that he is calling you to, so that this objection can be dealt with in your heart and with those people. Because the fair thing is, is that anyone who has not heard of Christ, anyone who is not saved by Christ, the fair thing is, is that they go to hell. But in God's grace, in his mercy, in his abounding love and steadfast kindness, he has given you the truth of the gospel that you might be called to proclaim it to a people who are without hope. So then the next homework question, I guess, is are we going? Because even if you are not feeling inwardly called to, you know, the pygmies in New Guinea or some kind of thing like that, at your workplace, you are to be a, a city on a hill. At your workplace, you're supposed to be salt and, and light. At your workplace, you are supposed to be someone different, something different. You are to be the first wherever you go to say, you know what's not fair is that he chose me. You know what's not fair? If you only knew the things that went on here, you would say, yep, no hope for that one. But by God's glory, by his grace, he has allowed me into the kingdom. Second objection. You ready? This is the judgmental objection. It's very close to the other one, and so sometimes we, we get these fragmented together, but here is how I'm going to artic try to articulate the judgmental objection. Uh, Christians are judgmental to think that they have the only answer about God and salvation. It is closed-minded to think that the majority of the world is going to hell forever because they don't believe in this person, Jesus Christ. So in essence... You know, how do you, how do you know that you've got the only way? This is, this is wrong for you to think that. So that's what they'll say to you. They're like, you, you're, you're, you're judging. You can't judge me. Have you ever heard that? Well, judgment and observational discernment are different, and we need to have the right categories, people. If you see me at the bar getting drunk and you confront me, you are not judging me. What you're doing is saying, hey, uh, pastor, don't you think that a man in your position or somebody who claims Christ ought not to be here at the bar getting drunk? Because I don't know, that's what scripture says. That's not judging. That's just 
calling it what it is. You're holding me accountable. And I would pray that that was exactly what you would do. And I would hope that you would do that for one another out of love. And so I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 5.20. And I've highlighted what I want for you to see, but all of God's word is, is, is wonderful and is profitable. But look what it says there. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's our, that's our job. That's what he's called us to, right? So we're ambassadors. We're going out on his behalf. God making his appeal through us. So it's not our message. This is not my message. Paul is going to tell us very quickly in Galatians. Hopefully, you've already started reading that. But he's going to tell us whose message this is. It's not his. It's not mine. It's, it's not yours. It's God's appeal. And what are we doing? We are imploring you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is not judgment. This is, the op- this is pleading. We ought to bring the gospel to those around us, not with hands clenched and fingers pointed, but rather on our knees with hands extended saying, please turn, turn from this wicked generation. Save yourself through accepting the gift of Christ Jesus. Christians do not attend any kind of judgment. When we deliver the gospel, when we tell people, you're wrong, this is right, it's not based on judgment. It's based on the truth of God's word. Jesus said he is the only way. We would be judging people to not tell them. We would be judging them unfit for the kingdom if we didn't share. Do you understand that? We would be saying, yeah, I'm good enough. Jesus died for me, but, but for you, nah, he doesn't want the likes of you. You see, this objection couldn't be any wronger, more wrong. This is not a judgment. This is a life raft. Here is another objection. Are you ready? Uh, The universal objection. This is a universal objection. It goes something like this. All religions are basically the same thing. We should be good people. We should treat others well, seek after God. All faith traditions ultimately lead to God. And there are other avenues by which people who are genuinely seeking God might be saved and eventually even come to worship Him in heaven. And so, since all roads lead to the same place, we shouldn't get caught up in arguing one system over another. I'm okay, you're okay, let's be okay today, right? That's the kind of thing. Now, to steal a quote that we've all become uh, extraordinarily familiar with, this is what you can refer to as misinformation or disinformation. It is just simply not the case. If you examine world religions, you will understand that there are some insurmountable differences between them. I mean, just insurmountable differences. That they make claims that cannot be overcome. They make claims that make it so not all roads lead to the same mountaintop in and of themselves. One of them is found in your Bibles. It goes like this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life 
And everybody in every other religion can find me if they just are good people and they follow their faith tradition, correct? Isn't that what it says? No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Was, was Jesus, are, are, are you proposing, truly, are you proposing that Jesus at his time, in his country of origin, that he was ignorant, completely ignorant of the faith traditions of the Romans and the Greeks that surrounded him? That he was ignorant of those false deities that were worshipped? That only a handful of years after his death, burial, and resurrection, Paul would go and appeal to them about these gods? Jesus knew nothing of this. Jesus knew nothing, you're going to claim, of all of the other faith traditions around him, all of the ites that the Jews drove out of their land, of the promised land, all of those other ites, the Baal worship, the Asheroth worship, the, uh, all, all those false gods. Jesus was unaware of this. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me give you some, for examples, I'm just going to give you uh, just a couple. First, the Koran claims that Jesus is not God, he was just a good teacher, a merely human prophet. Jesus claims of himself and is recorded in the Bible that he is the only begotten son of God, that he is God in the flesh, and that he was died, died, he died, was buried, and resurrected on behalf of saving our sins. The Quran teaches otherwise that both cannot be true. Hinduism claims that there are many gods and that we will go through reincarnation until eventually uh, that stops. Buddhism claims that there is no heaven, there is only something called nirvana, and there is an eightfold path to this, and we have to be obedient to that eightfold path, and when we do, eventually we are absorbed into the deity. These all can't be true. Not all, it's so foolish to say this, it would be the same as saying, can you give me directions to Burger King, because I believe in the slogan that they've said, and I would like to go there and support their cause. And I would say, sure, my friend, go out these doors. Pick a direction and go. And that's how you find your way to Burger King. You'd be like, does anybody else have a direction to Burger King? Because I would like to get there sometime today, right? Now, unfortunately for Burger King, or for McDonald's rather, I could probably tell you that and wouldn't be completely inaccurate, right? Or a Starbucks for that matter. Just pick a direction, go, and eventually you'll hit one. Maybe, but you also might run off a cliff or into a tree or into a lake. Don't always follow GPS, right? Turn now. One plus one equals two. There is ultimately right and wrong. There is one way, and it's God's way, and we should not be ashamed of that. And everybody intrinsically knows that, that there has to be one right answer. Last objection that I'm going to give you. There may be more. This is the knowledge objection. We might call this an agnostic view, basically. So the knowledge objection would go something like this. We don't know if there is a God at all, let alone what happens to people after death. Therefore, we cannot know that Jesus is the only way of salvation. How can you know? You, have you ever been dead? I've never been dead. You've never been dead. You don't know what's there, right? The 
only way we can know is by personal experience. So I guess we'll find out when we get there, right? Well, Jeremiah 9, 5 through 6 says, everyone deceives. Now, I don't have the whole text up here. You can turn there if you want. You can write it down and check me later. I encourage you to do either one. Jeremiah 9, 5 through 6. I'm going to read it to you, and then you're going to see the part that's up here. You ready? Jeremiah 9, 5 through 6, starting at 5. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Now here we are. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So, according to the text, how many people deceive their neighbor? How many people speak the truth? How many are doing these things? Now, and if you're unfamiliar with that passage in Jeremiah, which you're probably thinking, I hope that you are, man, that passage in Jeremiah sounds awfully familiar to another passage that I'm more familiar with, and, and you're right, it would probably be this one in Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, whom by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Where does morality come from? We just evolved to be moral? Everybody in every society? There is no society out there since the dawn of time, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to bet, okay? Now, this is not gambling because I'm talking allegorically, okay? So, but I'm willing to bet since the beginning of time, throughout all of history, every single man who had a wife, if you came and took her as your own, that would be a problem in their society. I don't care if money is gold or if it's seashells. If I've got a bag of seashells and you take them, that's called stealing, and it's wrong, and we're going to have a problem. Period. So where does morality come from? Or, or even that, where does guilt and shame come from? Because if my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and I think stealing's okay, but you think it's wrong, why do I still feel guilty or shameful for it later? Where does that come from? Where does objective truth or reality come from? How can we even know that we're really in this room right now? Maybe I'm not even really here. Why is there so many religions that speak of deity, that speak of an afterlife? Throughout all of history, all of these people have come up with this thing and they've just come, come up with it willy-nilly? No, the truth is, is that God says, Every single person who has ever been created on the face of this globe has a God-shaped hole in their heart. And we desperately try to fill it. And we try to fill it with all kinds of different things. But God has provided a way. He's provided us a truth, and he says, you know what it is. This objection does not take seriously human history. This objection does not take seriously, at, at, at very least, the Bible's claims. Now, as Christians, that's the only thing we can appeal to. But praise the Lord that our 
that our word is true because it tells us that every single one of us is created in God's image, has that God-shaped hole, and when we tell them the truth of the word, they either receive it or they don't. That's not up to us, but the truth is the truth. Humans spiritually dead. Humans are spiritually dead apart from Christ. So rather than dismiss or apologize for the exclusivity of Christ with these proposed contradictions, rather than dismiss or apologize the exclusivity of Christ, we should embrace it. We should worship the Lord that this is the case and give him glory for his decision to do it in this way. And the exclusivity of Christ should motivate us to evangelize. And we should meet these counters head on without fear. And, and, and by the way, we should meet them with the word of God and not just the logic of man. Yes, argue with the logic of man, but the word of God is living and active. The word of God does not return void. The word of God makes the wise look like fools. And so do not rest on the wisdom of this world. Use that as a tool, one of your tools, but use the word of God. Next, you ready? The condition of this claim. This we're going to go through fairly quickly as well because I want to get us to the last thing uh, for this morning. The condition of this claim, we're going to look at Jesus and what he has fulfilled. So the Bible is the word of God. You either believe it or you don't. One cannot believe apart from God. He has to give us faith. I don't know if you knew that. That's a sermon for another time. You don't bring anything to the table, not even your own faith. That was a gift of God to us if we believe, okay? Uh, every church, even in contemporary culture, and every Christian is going to undergo persecution. And part of the reason is, is because the world cannot understand uh, uh, the, the sold-out nature of what it means to be a Christian. So, here is what Christ has done to stand up to his claim. This is the condition of his claim. These conditions have to be met for this claim to be true. Does this make sense? I probably lost you for a minute. We're back on track. Here's what Jesus has done to fulfill the condition of his claim. Firstly, uh, he was conceived, Christ alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Jesus must be fully God and fully man. So both of these two go together. He must be human to stand in the place of humanity. He must be God in order to absorb all of God's wrath. Here's an illustration I use with the kids at Beach Point or with other people that I've used in the past. Uh, I, 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 uh, there's, there's juice in this cup. Which is bigger, this cup or this pitcher? It's not a trick question. The, 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 the pitcher's bigger, right? Don't make fun of me. The pitcher's bigger, the cup is smaller. Assuming that this pitcher is full of juice and I begin to pour into this cup, there is going to be a time where the cup will be filled and the pitcher will still have some left. And if you just continue to pour, it has nowhere else to go, correct? So what if... What if this pitcher is filled with God's wrath over sin, his righteous wrath over sin? It needs a vessel of equal 
volume to absorb the full measure of it, or there is still some left over for the rest of us. Through Christ, he is an equal vessel, both in humanity, but also in deity. So he has the form of a cup, just like this cup, because he looks like a human, right? In every aspect, fully human. And yet, miraculously, he is a cup without a bottom, so he can continuously take the wrath of God for all time, for all humans, whoever lived, whoever would come to know him, and God's wrath can be fully poured out into God. So some of the conditions were he has to be fully God and fully man or it wouldn't work. Along with that, he has to live a sinless life. So he is fully able to sin because he's human, tempted in every way, and yet victorious over sin. He had to die a penal substitutionary death. I know these are fancy words. What that means is he had to do a one-for-one trade. He had to be a substitute for you and me and all who would believe. And he had to die, truly die. He didn't swoon on the cross. He didn't go unconscious on the cross. He truly died and entered into death for three days until God raised him from the dead, raised him from the dead, triumphant over sin. He, amen. He had to truly die. He had to conquer death He had to substitute us in our place, taking all the wrath down into the grave on our behalf and then rose from the dead triumphant over that. Because he was spotless, it was therefore unjust for God to keep him in the grave. So the condition of his claim is perfect. Every condition of the claim has been met in Christ. Every condition. And that is why when we look at these, the clarity of this claim or the counters of this claim, we can meet them unashamedly, as Paul says. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. So that brings me to the scripture in, in Acts 4.12. So there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among man by which you must be saved. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the only one who fulfills all these conditions necessary. So we ought to praise God for all these conditions of our salvation, which brings me to the final point, which is this, the, the, uh, oh, the congruence of the claim. Now, what I mean by this is, do you know what the word congruence means? It means like e- equal to, right? So how are we supposed to interact in light of this claim, what effect is this to have on us as we live our lives saved under this gospel? Three things I have. There's probably more. The first one is this. We need to beware of arrogance. Your faith Your salvation is based on the amazing grace of God. It has nothing to do with how pretty you are, how wealthy you are, how smart you are, how good you are. It has nothing to do with what you've done or what you bring to the table. Ephesians 2. 
8 through 9. For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot be prideful, for we bring nothing. And therefore, we are not allowed to judge others. But you have to remember, I talked about discernment, application of God's word in the discerning of truth and judgment are two different things. But we cannot be arrogant. Second congruence to this claim that we must practice is we need to beware of allowance. Salvation is not a license to sin. There are standards in Christianity. There are things we ought to shun. There are things that we ought to embrace. We ought to encourage one another for these things. We ought to guard against these things. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We cannot misuse the freedom we have in Christ. We must still call sin, sin. We cannot make allotment for what popular culture says just because it makes us or others around us uncomfortable. The word of God is the word of God. And so in some degrees, and I hope you understand what I'm we cannot practice inclusion. Christianity is by nature an exclusive religion. Because its Savior is exclusive. Christ is exclusive. Lastly, we need to beware of alteration. What I mean by this is we need to hold fast in faith with zeal to the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians, oh, this is Galatians. Galatians 1. I'll read to you 2 Corinthians anyway because now you're all wondering. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4, this is what he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you, you put up with it readily enough. And unfortunately, we see that in churches all around. We see that Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed, but somehow they're preaching a different gospel. They're preaching a name it, claim it gospel. They're preaching a all-inclusive, no repentance necessary gospel. They're, 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 they're preaching a Jesus is just one flavor in the midst of the 36 sold at Ben and Jerry's that can still give you the eternal justification that you're looking for, kind of alteration to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel and there is no other. We cannot adopt other religious beliefs or practices and bring them into our faith. We must stand on its exclusivity. We must live the gospel as well as speak it. We must seek to live like Christ as well as love him. We must guard these biblical truths as well as glory in them. You see, Jesus is the only way. Which brings me to my last and final C as we close, which isn't close. That's my sixth C. I should have had seven Cs. Anyway, we talked about the clarity of the gospel. 
We talked about the counters to this gospel. We talked about the condition that Christ had to fulfill this gospel, and we've talked about our congruence to this gospel. But here's the final C. It's not on your notes. You ready? Brother or sister, you should have confidence in this gospel. It should change the way you live your life. It should change how you get up in the morning. It should change how you go to bed at night. It should change how you interact with your spouse, how you do your job, how you raise your kids. It should change how we worship in just a couple minutes. It should change how we take the Lord's Supper. It should change how you drive your car. It should change how you wash your car. It should change how you put your clothes on and how you take them off, believe it or not. See, this gospel is our confidence. It is our hope. It is our peace. It is our joy. It is our message. It is our life and our life eternal. So we can stand on the exclusivity of Christ, not with any pride, right? Nothing to the cross I bring. Only to the cross I cling. And we can do that in joy and in peace and in hope and in confidence, knowing that because it's exclusive, he will never turn us away. Because it had everything to do with him in the first place, and so therefore it is sure. Through our radical love, service, and kindness, we can live out the good news of Jesus and show others the door that God has opened in hopes that they too, by God's grace, might be able to walk through that door. That door is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the Christ, the one and only Son of the Most High God. You are, he is our salvation. He is our king. God, we praise you for the exclusivity of Jesus, for it's in him that we can entirely depend. In him we place all our trust, all our hope, and all our praise. It's in your name we pray, amen.